Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner and today we'll be talking about stuff that happened and the stuff that happened that we're talking about this week is the interwar period, the time, the period between 1918 and approximately 1933 between the two great world wars and the events that transpired in that time. And we'll be focusing primarily on Europe. We're not going to focus so much on the Far East. We'll focus on that in the the next episode. But this this today, we're talking about Europe particularly the Russian Civil War, the rise of fascism, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, and so on and so forth, things that happened in that time period. So, before we get started, remember that this podcast is listener-supported. Though I do run ads from time to time, I do prefer to have listener support so I don't have to run as many ads and I can just enjoy telling the story more without any interruptions. If you want to support the podcast financially, please head over to the the podcast page on anchor.fm. The link will be in the episode description and the podcast description. You can head over to any of those to find the link to support the podcast. You can donate $1, $5, or $10 a month. It is automatic transaction, and it would really mean the world to me, and it gives me the support needed to continue telling these stories in the method that I've decided to tell them. And also, if you enjoy the podcast, a great way to support, if you cannot support financially, is just to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe to the podcast, and drop me a five-star review to let me know that you and you're enjoying what you're hearing. All right, without further ado, let's get started. So the war's over. The Great War, World War I, it is over, with final climactic battles in France, in the Middle East, in the Balkans. The Great War came to an end, with the Allied powers emerging victorious. Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire are resolutely defeated, with the German Empire and Austria-Hungary dissolving entirely. Yeah, the German Empire did did dissolve, though Germany did continue, but Austria-Hungary as a unit did not continue to exist. At the same time, the war had brought the Tsarist Russian Empire to an end and seen the, rebir- the rebirth of a new Russian state headed by a Bolshevik government. As we will begin this episode, Russia is still in turmoil and a civil war is beginning to brew. But we'll get to that. And as we know, as this is all going on, there is some trouble in the Far East as Japan and China start to get into it. But this episode will focus solely on what's happening in Europe. In the next episode, we will cover the events that transpire in the Far East leading up to the next big conflict we're covering in this series. Back in Europe. Three empires are brought to an end due to the Great War, with a fourth on the way, as the Ottoman Empire is teetering on the edge of oblivion. So, the war is over, what happens now? First, let's look at the immediate aftermath, with troops returning home from the fronts. German troops were given 15 days after the cessation of hostilities to evacuate France, Belgium, and Luxembourg, and Allied troops moved into German territory to occupy the Rhineland in case Germany got any funny ideas. A formal state of war existed for seven months after the initial ceasefire, and Allied ships blockaded German ports in the meantime, so many soldiers remained stationed in case of another outbreak of hostilities, but most returned to homes and economies ravaged by the catastrophe, particularly among the Central Powers. Germany and Austria-Hungary had virtually collapsed, with Austria-Hungary no longer existing at all as a nation. A new German government was scrambling to put the pieces back together. The Ottoman Empire was still suffering from what can easily be called a civil war, experienced while they were still fighting the Allies. Many of these Arab groups who fought against the Sultanate were now establishing political parties and moving upward in governmental circles. 
In Bulgaria, the population had been ravaged by the war, and Greece and the new rising Republic of Yugoslavia were demanding that they hand over territory as the defeated party. And on top of that, Bulgaria had just experienced an uprising against the monarchy, and even though the uprising had been quelled, the social tensions were pretty palpable. In short, just because the war was over doesn't mean everything went back to normal. The most prominent place this was seen was in Russia, where the new Bolshevik government was having trouble getting the populace to fall in line. Not everyone was on board with Bolshevik ideals, and those opposed fell into a few different camps. Some respected the monarchy that had been deposed and wanted it to stick around. Others felt democracy was pretty awesome, but also appreciated the democratic capitalist systems of other Western states. Communism, in theory, was better than the tyrannical Tsardom, for sure, but to these people, there were better alternatives. Because of this split in ideologies, the populace was torn as to which direction to take, and quickly both sides militarized. The Bolsheviks, who were now in control of the government, had created the Red Army and taken control of the military, so the opposition created the White Army. The former Imperial Russian Army was split in two, and by the end of 1918, war had begun within the shattered nation following the Russian exit from World War I. In a series of fierce battles fought between numerous factions, most notably the Red Army and the White Army, remembered today as the Russian Civil War. From 1917 to 1923, Russia was a bloody battleground, and ground zero for an ideological war that really continues to this day. This is a really messy series of events, and it just gets more and more complicated as they progress. We've got communists forming factions all over the place. In the new provinces of Ukraine and Mongolia, and even China has communist factions entering Soviet borders to assist in the fighting. Opposing the communists were the White Army, which is more of an umbrella title than an actual unified force. The White Army had people who supported the Tsarist monarchy that the Bolsheviks had toppled. They had people who supported the Provisional Government, and that briefly interceded the Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union, and they had people who flat out wanted anything other than the Bolsheviks in charge. On top of these two forces, there were a number of third-party groups who armed themselves and opposed both the Red and White Armies. But most of these were anarchist groups dotting the Russian landscape. Most notable among these were the Green Army, which was less of an army and more of a loosely organized group of anarchists opposing the Bolsheviks and the White Army, and hell-bent on protecting their own villages and towns from incursions by both armies. And the Maknovia, a group of Ukrainians who attempted to form an independent Ukraine as Russia descended into chaos. And on top of all of this, there were a few nations who lent their own troops to the White Army over the course of the conflict, with Japan, Czechoslovakia, Britain, and the United States putting boots on the ground to fight the communist ground forces. To make matters even worse for the Soviets, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and other nations declared their independence from the Soviet Union in 1918, shortly after the war ended, not this Russian Civil War, World War I. And the Soviet Union attempted to invade each of these in an effort to reclaim its lost territory. So in short, this was all a mess. We've got a lot to cover in this episode, but let's go over this really quickly. The war started because a number of Soviet states declared independence from the Bolsheviks, and a new Soviet Union invaded each of them. 
Now, this is the point when the counter-Bolshevik White Army springs into action, launching attacks on many fronts in an attempt to inspire a popular uprising and dislodge the Bolshevik government. One of the most famous battles took place at Petrograd, known as St. Petersburg today, where the White Army was resolutely defeated by the Red Army. This would become a trend in much of the war, and after a few years of fighting, it all devolved into mindless killing. And part of this mindless killing is the events of the Red Terror and the White Terror, where both armies targeted religious and ethnic groups and began exterminating them. The Red Army primarily targeted Cossacks, groups of Eastern Orthodox Christians residing in Russia, and other political dissidents who defied Bolshevik rule. The White Army, on the other hand, primarily targeted Jews living in Ukraine and collaborators with the Soviet government. If you remember from earlier in this series, anti-Semitism in Russia had been steadily gaining momentum and it was starting to reach a fever pitch. Many Jews fled to Poland after Poland declared their independence. For almost six years, from the October Revolution in 1917 to June of 1923, these series of wars carved a path of destruction through the Russian landscape and deeply demoralized the Russian people. As many of us know, the Bolsheviks and the Red Army eventually took control of the nation and triumphed over the White Army, primarily because the Red Army was united behind the policies of big government, forcible suppression of the opposition, and communism while the White Army was made up of diverse groups of thought who would never fully agree on a system of government were they to emerge victorious from the war. However, despite the Red Army's triumph over the White Army, during the Civil War, the provinces of Poland, Finland, Estonia, and Latvia, all former members of the Russian Empire, all militarized and forced Soviet troops out of their borders, proclaiming themselves new independent nations. It was a blow to the Soviets, but they had more pressing matters at hand. By the time the Civil War had come to an end, it was too late to send the necessary troops to reinstate these provinces in the Soviet Union because they were already independent and attacking them could provoke Western nations. But the Soviets would not forget what they saw as betrayal. So that's what's going on in Russia for the first five years after the guns cease on the Western Front. Let's quickly jump over to the Balkan states to see what's going on there. During World War I, Serbia bore the brunt of the fighting in the Balkans, having lost as much as a staggering 30% of its pre-war population due to the conflict, and there was a lot of rebuilding to be done. However, there was another pressing matter that the Serbs wanted to attend to. How could they protect themselves against another attack by an international bully? Remember, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had virtually dissolved by the end of the war, and all the former countries involved were thrown into disarray. Croatia, Bosnia, and Slovenia were among these countries, and all of them were feeling the same apprehension as Serbia. They were independent now, but who was to say countries like Italy, Austria, or the Soviet Union weren't going to try to annex them in the future? No, some contingency plan had to be implemented, and that contingency plan came in the form of the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, uniting their borders as one nation, which would eventually be known as Yugoslavia. And for the purposes of convenience, if I refer to this nation in this particular episode, I will be calling it Yugoslavia. In the West... French, British, American, and other Allied troops returned home and worked to begin the long process of rebuilding. Then, all of the nations met in France to answer one big question. War isn't cheap. 
Every major nation involved had adopted the total war mentality. Remember that we talked about that in the Napoleonic War, the first episode. They had mobilized their entire populace as a means to win the war. Now all those shells they'd built had been used. The uniforms they'd sewn were hanging in the back of closets. The tanks, the planes, the ships they'd manufactured were being scuttled, melted down, or sitting empty in a field somewhere in France. So who was going to foot the bill? Enter the Paris Peace Conference. Three months after the armistice, in January of 1919, representatives from over 60 countries and movements met in Paris to discuss where the world was going to go from here. Obviously, all of the involved groups from the Great War were present, minus the Soviet Union, who, was, who had already signed a peace treaty with the Central Powers while the war was still ongoing and, you know, they were dealing with a crisis of their own. Plus, a number of nations, either not involved in the war or who were not recognized by the major players, they all sent representatives to try to plug their interests with the upcoming treaties. Because if they were going to all redraw a bunch of borders, if they were going to give some people money, you know, these people wanted to be in just in case they were able to get a little bit from that. Among these, that were China, Cuba, Guatemala, Liberia, Siam, Uruguay, the First Republic of Armenia, the Irish Republic, and others, all of whom desired to be acknowledged as independent. Also present was a delegation from the new Arab states who had recently ousted the Ottomans from control over their territories, a delegation from the provisional government of Korea, a, de a delegation from Vietnam headed by Ho Chi Minh himself, seeking independence and self-determination for Vietnam, and delegations from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, the Mountainous Republic of the Northern Caucasus, the Democratic Republic of Georgia, and the Ukraine, all sent representatives in an attempt to get their respective nations recognized as independent from the new Soviet Union. In addition, three non-national delegations were present. The first Pan-African Congress, made up of 57 African delegates from 15 African countries advocating for the decolonization of the continent. The Inter-Allied Women's Conference, who brought human rights issues to the international stage, such as human trafficking, women's suffrage, and the right of women to serve in, in future League of Nations delegations. And importantly, the Zionists, 117 Jewish delegates who advocated for the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. As we know, they would be successful. All in all, it took almost two years of deliberation from January of 1919 to August of 1920 for the entirety of the resolutions to be set in stone. In the end, five peace treaties would be signed. The Treaty of Sevres, which awarded the Ottoman territories of Syria and Lebanon to France, and the territories of Iraq and Palestine to Britain, while awarding the west coast of modern-day Saudi Arabia to the new Arab states who had rebelled against the Ottomans during the war. The Allies were to be in full control of Ottoman finances, and the Ottoman army was to be reduced to 50,000 men. The treaties of Trianon and Saint-Germain declared the new borders of the recently estranged Austria and Hungary. Because the nations were so impoverished following the war, they were not required to pay any monetary reparations. The Treaty of Nui awarded Bulgarian territory to Greece and the future nation of Yugoslavia, as well as mandated that it reduce its army to 20,000 men and pay $100 million in reparations. The Treaty of Versailles was the most extensive and well-known treaty that took place after the war, and detailed the necessary concessions that Germany was supposed to hand over to the Allies. The treaty is actually 440 articles long, so I'm just going to summarize this. 
The Germans were forced to hand over a whole bunch of territory to the new Polish state, Czechoslovakia, France, Lithuania, Denmark, Luxembourg, and the free city of Danzig, and Belgium. They were forbidden from expanding their military higher than 100,000 soldiers, their navy above six battleships, their air force was supposed to be disbanded completely, and they were ordered to pay 132 billion gold marks in reparations over the next 66 years. That's 269 billion US dollars in 2020. 269 billion dollars from a country who had just had about 20% of its territory confiscated and had experienced two and a half million deaths, both civilian and military, from the conflict. Those who made it back from the front lines were often wounded or psychologically compromised from the trauma of battle. By the end of the war, German supply lines were practically non-existent and the German people were demoralized beyond belief. And now, they were tasked with paying $5 billion to the people who had broken the back of their country. It was an impossible and irrational task that they really had no choice other than to accept. So, amid sprawling protests against the terms of the treaty by the German people, the nation quietly went to work finding a way to put itself back together under a new government known as the German Reich or the German Republic. Today, it is remembered as the Weimar Republic. So remember how Germany had a revolution literally weeks before the war ended? This is the government that took the place of Kaiser Wilhelm II, and initially the Republic began instituting reforms that were pretty appealing to the beleaguered German people, such as mandating an eight-hour maximum workday, social welfare relief, agricultural and industrial reforms, rights of civil service associates, regulated wages, and universal suffrage over the age of 20. By 1919, the New Republic had drafted a constitution, which, though opposed by much of the military and some far-left political factions, looks promising for the destitute nation. Among other things, the Constitution included clauses which limited the powers of, of the executive and legislative branches, asserted the right of the people to assemble peacefully and express their beliefs without the threat of government intervention, and set in stone the freedom of religion. However, there was a certain clause that some balked at. In Article 48 of the New German Constitution, a power was given to the executive government that allowed them to suspend all civil liberties and all authority of the legislature in the event of an emergency, though it didn't specify exactly what emergencies this entailed, other than, quote, if the general public is in danger. Most Germans didn't think much of this clause at first because they thought that the end of the Great War meant an end to most domestic dangers. After the devastation of the war and the strict authoritarian rule of the Kaiser monarchy, things seemed to be looking up for Germany. But then there was the debt. 132 billion gold marks from a destitute nation. The new German Republic was tasked with dealing with paying this back, and in a timely manner nonetheless. To make matters worse, France and Belgium, still bitter about the war and holding a fundamental distrust of the Germans, occupied a few industrial areas in western Germany, determined to get their reparation payments. Before you freak out, by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, this was totally legal. But in response to that, the German Republic ordered the workers in these regions to go on strike to protest the occupation, so those resources that were supposed to be used to pay the countries back couldn't be confiscated by those same countries. 
Because these areas were primary sources of coal and iron mining and manufacturing in Germany, and because they were occupied, and these workers won strike, the German economy quickly tanked. In an attempt to prevent an imminent collapse, the German government decided to just print more money. And more. And more. And more. And more. And that was the wrong thing to do. Flooding the German market with new money didn't make everyone wealthy. In fact, it just made all this money basically worthless due to a process called hyperinflation. You know what that means? It means it's time for a definition. And right now we're going to talk about hyperinflation. Inflation is a decrease in the purchasing power of money reflected in a general increase in the prices of goods and services in an economy. So even though there was more money in Germany, everything also cost a lot more of it. Hyperinflation is inflation on steroids. Before World War I, one German mark was about the same as a French franc. By 1923, one US dollar was the equivalent of 4.2 trillion German marks. Not a million. Not even billion. Trillion. A billion gold marks was not even worth one US penny. It was bad. While a lot of the rest of the world welcomed renewed prosperity in the Roaring Twenties, such as the United States and Britain, Germany withered with storing unemployment and hyperinflation. Just south of Germany, Italy was experiencing similar problems. Even though they'd been on the winning side with the Allies, the war had crippled Italy's workforce and economy, and its national pride was shattered due to the catastrophe at Caporetto and the numerous defeats along the Isonzo River. For their own reasons, Italy also struggled with inflation, unemployment, homelessness, and nationwide hunger for several years following the end of the war, and these chronic problems saw no end in sight. Germans and Italians saw the rest of the world prospering and grew bitter that the war had ravaged their nation and they'd been left to rot. At this point, as a result of German and Italian destitution, a few new players entered the stage, vowing to transform their nations for the better, with a brand new political ideology centered in social welfare, ultranationalism, forcible suppression of the opposition, and strict economic and societal regimentation. It was called fascism. Now we're going to talk about fascism, but really quick, we got to hear a word from our sponsors. Now let's get one thing straight here. There's this common saying that fascism is a right-wing ideology, and many dictionary definitions define fascism as right-wing, but as I've researched the ideology, it doesn't seem to fit that narrative. We're going to deviate from historical narrative for, to discuss this for a minute, because I believe it's important in today's political climate, where fascism and communism are terms thrown around so liberally. Fascism is most often characterized by ultranationalism and the belief that the well-being of the nation is more important than the well-being of the individual. Other characteristics of fascism are the forcible suppression of the political opposition, expanding the borders of the nation, strict regimentation of society and the economy, and corporatism. Let me clarify. The fascist ideologies espoused by Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini do not pursue capitalism. They pursue corporatism. There's a difference. So why is this ideology billed as right-wing? Honestly, I don't totally understand. 
Maybe it's because these fascists were so anti-communist. That's really all I've seen that makes them seem right-wing is because they hate communists so much. But generally, right-wing proponents believe in free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and the free market. They want lower taxes, small government, and more local authority to deal with local problems. So let's go point by point. Right-wingers want, want free speech. Well, leading up to the ascent of their dictators, the fascist group known as the Brown Shirts in Germany and a parallel group known as the Black Shirts in Italy would go to university campuses and in their respective nations to stand in the back of lecture halls to professors speaking against fascism and shout and make a racket to drown out the speaker until the lecture time had ended. In both countries, it quickly became illegal to speak openly against the government punishable by life in prison or death. Strict regimentation of society is a keystone of the fascist movements and does not allow for freedom of speech. Now, freedom of the press. In Germany, Hitler outlawed any newspapers that held liberal or Jewish reporters and all news stories that had, had to be approved by government figures. Mussolini attempted a similar suppression, but it was not su as successful as Hitler's, though he did create popular national radio shows as his own newspaper and had fascist supporters bomb a popular liberal press. Next up, freedom of assembly. Like I said, the brown shirts in Germany and the black shirts in Italy would show up to assemblies and shout them down until they dispersed, if it went against the ideology they were promoting. They also broke up strikes across the nation using violent means. And a free market. As stated previously, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy instituted a system of corporatism. This was not capitalism, because in a perfect capitalist society, if one company is producing apples and the price per apple is 30 cents, another company can produce apples and make the apples worth 25 cents each. Then the first company either has to make a better apple or they have to lower their price. Capitalism encourages competition and the best deal for the consumer. Under the corporatism of these fascist countries, the government began subsidizing the major corporate corporations and giving them ties to the government in order to undermine small businesses. So each nation was governed by these huge corporations, which often had members of the government on their boards of directors and in other positions of power. This created monopolies over most necessary products, something that capitalism is intended to prevent. Fascism does not use capitalism. Lower taxes? In fascist Italy, Benito Mussolini doubled the taxes of any unmarried man in Italy to force them to get married and have children. In Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler doubled the corporate tax rate from 20% to 40% before World War II even broke out. And don't get me started on the wartime taxes of these countries. Small government? Please. So how can anyone say fascism is a far-right ideology? Ultranationalism? Maybe. But high taxes to be redistributed to certain societal programs? That seems more left-leaning than right. Just my observation. Benito Mussolini, an Italian socialist, led a march on Rome in 1922 and overthrew the government, instantly establishing the National Fascist Party as the National Party of Italy and declaring himself ruler of the country. Years later, Adolf Hitler achieved the same goal, and the curtain of fascism descended over Central Europe. How did that happen? It mostly comes down to crisis management and national prestige. Germany was in a downward spiral after the war ended, as was Italy. The governments put in place to rescue these nations either became complacent in the crisis or made things worse while their populations suffered. It was not fun to be a German or an Italian. 
So when someone comes along proposing actual solutions to these crises, however far-fetched, racist, or ultra-nationalist they be, populations who have suffered year after year are more willing to embrace these people, and such is the case in Italy in the 1920s and Germany in the 1930s. Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler championed a new era in their respective nations, doing away with the old adages of peace and democracy and forging newfound nationalism based on territorial expansion, ethnic superiority, and extreme social regimentation. They would personally remake Italy and Germany in a new image, and there's a curious thread through both, with each calling back to a certain point in history where they believed their nations were at their highest despite either nation having not existed at that point. Mussolini called back to the Roman Empire, promising to restore Italy to the glory experienced at that time, and Hitler invoked the spirit of the Holy Roman Empire and the German Empire, vowing to bring Germany back to the power and authority over Europe that those nations experienced. Through the rise of both of these dictators, this idea of restoration of historical power drove their respective populations into a nationalistic frenzy, and it didn't take long at all. In short, if you take a beleaguered, destitute, hungry, depressed nation and tell them that you, personally, will take them out of being beleaguered, destitute, hungry, and depressed, I'd say they're inclined to get on the bandwagon without paying much attention to the possible repercussions. As stated previously, Benito Mussolini marched on Rome in 1922 and took power for himself, ousting the previous king and establishing the National Fascist Party as the leading party in the nation, crushing political and intellectual opposition, and focusing on economic modernization at first, which was a welcome change for Italians who still lived in majority rural communities under impoverished circumstances. One of his main goals was to create an agriculturally self-sufficient society, which he actually accomplished at one point, though at the cost of the nutrition of his people. They became heavily reliant on bread and pasta, which were staples in Italian diets, obviously, and utilized fresh fruits, vegetables, and meats less and less. At the same time, Mussolini reintroduced traditional gender roles as societal norms, strongly encouraging women to stay home and be homemakers, providing tax incentives to do so, while forcing men to get married, as I said before, with his bachelor's tax policy. Yeah, that was a real thing. Authorian, authoritarian governments can do stuff like that. Mussolini also instituted his own secret police, similar to the Gestapo in Nazi Germany, called the Organization for Vigilance and Repression of Anti-Fascism. These were the continuation of the black shirts that we talked about earlier. An interesting tidbit here is that one of the primary goals of this secret police was to crack down on organized crime, specifically on the Mafia, leading many members of Italian Mafia to flee to the United States, leading to the Italian Mafia stories like The Godfather that have become so beloved in America. So that's what Mussolini is doing over in Italy, but further north in Germany, some other things were starting to take shape that are pivotal to our storytelling. We talked about how Germany was a pretty awful place to be during and for about a decade after World War I, and organizations were coming into play who were proclaiming that they had the answer to it all. One of these organizations was a political party called the National Socialist German Workers' Party, remembered today as the Nazi Party. This party was founded in 1920 as a means to combat local communist insurrections in the politically divided Germany. 
The Nazis focused on the rights of workers while trying to lead them away from the communist ideas and direct them toward ethno-nationalist ideals while still campaigning as anti-big business, anti-capitalist, and anti-bourgeois as a party. Which, again, is why I'm curious as to why people label the Nazis as far-right. They don't seem to be far-right or far-left. They're just Nazis. The Nazis couldn't gain much traction for much of the 1920s because the people were too tired to be radicalized. It wasn't until the later part of the decade where things started to get wild in Germany. In 1923, a young Austrian radical politician rose through the ranks of the Nazi party named Adolf Hitler, championing a greater Germany fueled by a strong German national identity and a pure Germanic race, and the National Socialist German Workers' Party attempted to state a coup d'etat of the government. <laughs> That's a fancy French way of saying we're taking over the government. What is a coup d'etat? A coup d'etat is a sudden, often violent overthrow of an existing government by a small group. The coup d'etat, also known as coup, is typically an illegal, unconstitutional seizure of power conducted by a dictator, a guerrilla military force, or an opposing political faction. In this turn of events that came to be known as the Beer Hall Putsch, the perpetrators were apprehended and put on trial, where Adolf Hitler was sentenced to five years in prison and his political party was outlawed. Hitler only ended up serving nine months in prison, but while there he wrote the memoir Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, where he changed his political strategy to blame Germany's problems on the Jewish population in Europe, citing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, published in the Russian Empire in the early 1900s, as proof that an international cabal of Jewish leaders were conspiring to take over the world. In the book, Hitler also argues for the creation of a German ethnostate, and condemns the Treaty of Versailles. As stated previously, he only ended up serving nine months in prison after being pardoned by the Bavarian Supreme Court, against strong protests from the judge who originally sentenced him. Now, we all know that Hitler was destined to become an evil dictator, but his rise to power differs from the stories of others who have held or would hold the same title. Hitler believed that instead of revolution, power should always be taken by democratic means rather than by revolution, which is interesting because he tried to overthrow the government just a few years earlier. Things didn't go well for a few years as the Nazi party, which I will now refer to as the Nazi party, though they didn't really refer to themselves as such, attempted to gain power somehow. They platformed a candidate for the German presidency, elevating Erich Ludendorff as their candidate, a famous World War I general who had led the German army to many early victories during the war. Unfortunately for the party, Ludendorff was a weak candidate and only took home 1% of the votes. He was the only candidate to gain less than one million votes. In the 1928 German federal election, the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party, now fully helmed by Hitler and no longer outlawed, won its first seats in the Reichstag, which was essentially the German parliament, gaining 12 seats for its representatives to take with just over 800,000 votes. While certainly a victory for the party, it was a small one. The Reichstag held 491 seats for representatives, and while 800,000 votes is no small number, almost 31 million votes were cast. The Nazi party was resolutely beaten by the German Communist Party, who gained 54 seats, which infuriated Hitler. Frustrated by the slow progress, the Nazis became emboldened, brash, and violent, openly provoking the communists in Germany, 
leading to something akin to a gang war. The Nazis had the brown shirts and the communists had the rot front. Both were paramilitary organizations affiliated with their respective parties, and around 1929, both would send militiamen to disrupt the opposing parties' meetings as hostilities increased leading up to the global economic crash of 1929, which only worsened Germany's problems, leading to a heightened level of radicalization among the German public. Tensions between the two parties reached a boiling point when a member of the Nazi party was shot at point-blank range by a member of the Rot Front in retaliation for an argument with his landlady who was coincidentally a member of the German Communist Party. This attack backfired magnificently as the Nazis pro propagandized the funeral and painted the Communist Party as a party of violence and barbarism, even though they were participating in similar tactics. It worked. In the 1930 federal election, the Nazi party gained 107 seats in the Reichstag, while the Communist Party took home 77. The only party with more seats than the Nazis was the Social Democratic Party, who had 143, a clear majority. Hitler's democratic strategy was paying dividends. The success solidified the Nazi idea that only through forcible suppression of the opposition could they achieve their goals. Galvanized, the brown shirts grew in number, and they began openly marching through the streets and barging in on meetings of other political parties to shout down speakers and disrupt orderly town halls. In something of a propagandistic paradox, as certain villages and towns in Germany became combat zones between the Nazis and the communists, with most combat being instigated by the Nazis, Hitler began using this violence as a platform for his campaign. He promised to restore law and order, to Germany and to end these street battles, even though his people were the ones perpetrating most of it. These campaigns worked. In the 1932 elections in Prussia, which was the eastern part of Germany at the time, the Nazi party won 36% of the vote, earning 162 seats in the Prussian version of the Reichstag, making them the most dominant party. Only months later, the Nazis won by a landslide in the 1932 federal elections in Germany, winning 37% of the votes and adding 123 seats to their influence, giving them a total of 230 seats. Wait, they won with only 36% of the votes? For someone living in the United States, this doesn't make any sense, because in the United States we abide by a winner-take-all system of elections, which has led to two dominating parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. In Germany, however, they favor a method called proportional representation. In this system, a given party is awarded a number of seats in their legislature comparative to the percentage of votes they receive. For instance, let's say there are four parties competing for office. The first party takes home 60% of the votes, an obvious win. The second party gets 25%, the third party gets 10%, and the fourth gets 5%. In the United States, the first party would have clearly won and would take control of the seats up for grabs in the given state, but instead, in Germany, if there are 100 seats up for grabs in the territory doing the election, the first party would get 60 of those seats, the second would get 25, the third would get 10, and the fourth would get 5. Even though the parties gain such minimal voting numbers, those who voted for them still get represented in the legislature. In the 1932 elections, 14 parties were awarded seats in the legislature, with five parties gaining the vast majority of them, the Nazis being the most prominent, and this is called proportional representation. 
Even though the Nazis gained the most seats in the Reichstag, they were still far from having a majority in the legislature, and their meteoric rise to power was disconcerting to other more moderate parties who began working together to keep the Nazis from passing any laws, creating political gridlock. So that November, the Chancellor called for another election in an attempt to alleviate some of that pressure, though it didn't really change very much. The Nazis still came out the dominant party in Germany, and as was tradition, they became the central parliamentary party in the nation, with Hitler becoming Chancellor. With a fanfare of praise from German nationalists presented to huge crowds of cheering German citizens, Hitler appeared as Germany's savior. The worst of the depression seemed to be over, and Hitler would save them all, restoring German identity and national prestige. And the reparations payments that caused this whole debacle, Hitler canceled all of them. No longer would Germany shell out money to those who had humiliated it. It was a new golden age for the German people. Then, it all went wrong. Thanks again for joining me on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, and we're talking about the interwar period between World War I and World War II this week. Next time, we will be focusing on not only the Far East and the conflicts between Japan, the surrounding islands, and China, and also a little bit of Russia. We are also going to be focusing on the Italian col uh, colonial pursuits in Albania and Ethiopia, and on the Horn of Africa and a couple of other things that are very important in leading up to the Second World War. We've got a lot to get into, and I'm very excited about it. Thank you all for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop a five-star review. Let me know that you care. Let me know that you're listening. Or if you are able, monetary compensation is very much appreciated. Just, have, just head over to the page on anchor.fm. Tanner talks about stuff that happened. The link will be in the podcast description and also on the podcast episode details. And you can find a link there to uh, donate directly to the podcast. That would mean the world to me. Thank you so much again for listening. And I will see you next time on Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. We're getting into the Second World War, folks. It's about to get real. See you next time. <laughs>